0: Earlier this month, there is, was a news report that came via CNN and a few other news outlets about some covert operations in the Middle East. And in particular, a successful mission to disrupt terrorist activities in Yemen. And at the heart of this Covert operation was the involvement of a double agent, someone who was able to infiltrate the terrorist organizations. It was Al, al- Qaeda, and be able to figure out what was going on, get next to, clo- very close to the senior leadership of this organization, and in that, in doing so, be able to disrupt this bomb plot that was taking place. And it's interesting, um, as I was reading it, I mean, it has all the makings of of Hollywood. You know, you kind of want to know what was going on behind that because this double agent got in there and got so close right next to the senior leadership of Al-Qaeda. That's significant. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, how could they have been so foolish? Did they let their guard down in some way? What happened? and as i was thinking about that it's that's quite possible it applies to what we're talking about today with spiritual warfare very elaborate deceit numbing complacency very similar to what we face in spiritual warfare our adversary is satan the devil And he appears to be harmless. He even appears to be on our side. And we can be easily deceived, and we can be very vulnerable. We're continuing our series in Ephesians, and as you know, we came to Ephesians chapter 6 today, and as the verses were read, verses 10 through 17, this is the portion of Ephesians now that we talked about It's more of the application And if you recall, I think it bears repeating, remember that Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, the believers especially. And so the audience sitting and listening to this letter being read most likely were believers. And we need to keep that in mind as he's writing some of these things, especially today when we're reading from Ephesians chapter 6. Because when we're talking about spiritual warfare, we're talking about believers, not unbelievers. And I want to make that distinction. I want to make sure we understand, especially because I don't know. Everybody coming in today, I don't know. Is everyone a believer? I don't know. And I want to make sure that we understand that it's significant that we have taken that step of faith, crossed over from darkness into light, and accepted Christ as our Savior. Because anything that we're going to be talking about in Ephesians 6 is going to apply to those who have done that, who have come to faith in Christ. The first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul writes about our position in Christ, who we are, what we have. We are sealed, we're adopted, we are his. The second half for chapters 4 through 6, it's more of the practical application, how to live it out. In the last part of the series, we've been talking about Christ-centered living, about being spirit-filled, about... Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths about forgiving each other. About wives, submit your husbands, husband love your wives, children obey your parents, and so on. And my question is, <laughs> is that easy? Not for me. That's why the first thing that as we approach these latter verses here, we've got to remember, the first thing, it is not easy, it's a battle. It is a battle. Now, as I look through these verses, and these are some very, I think, more of the more familiar verses to us, um, especially verses 10 through 17 and 10 through 18. Um, in some ways, that can be a danger because if you approach a portion of Scripture and say, Oh, yeah, I've read, I've read that since I was little, I know that. Be careful. It's good to go back and dig out some truths, and we're going to do that today. And the first truth is that this is a battle. Living out the realities of chapters 1 through 3 in the practical way that Paul describes is not easy, and it can include some pitched battles. Jesus warned us about this. See, in, in Luke 14, 27, he says, If anyone does not carry his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. He warned us it's going to be difficult, it's going to be challenging, it's going to be hard, it's going to be suffering. And too many times I think we have romanticized the idea of ca- picking up the cross and carrying it, and we have these pictures. It-, it wasn't pretty. I mean, think about it this way. You're locked up on death row, and here goes somebody on their death walk to the room that's hooked with, with, the, with the windows, with the gurney there, hooked up to IVs, and Jesus says, come, follow me. Put that picture in your mind. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's a road. It's difficult. But if we're true disciples, truly following him, that's exactly what we'll do. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He puts that, Paul puts that word in there, finally, saying, hey, this is a transition. Just finished about talking about those relationships and saying this is a transitional thought. And what follows is some wording and some language. That has to do with struggle. Skim down over, if you have your Bible open in front of you, skim down over those verses and just just look at some of these words. Strong, strength, might, armor, stand, wrestle, powers, forces. It's a struggle. This whole passage, that's what he's writing about. We've got to remember that. It's a battle. And quite frankly, it's a battle that everyone faces. If you read Romans chapter 7, you'll see that Paul himself struggled against sin. And if you read the books, book of Acts, all the way from the beginning to the end, you're going to see opposition, opposition, opposition. It's a struggle. We've got to remember that first. It's a battle. Second, our strength in the midst of this battle comes from God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The word is actually be strengthened. Same word in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so the, the phrase, again, it's actually two words that we find very frequently in the book of Ephesians, that is in Christ, or in the Lord, or in Him, found once again right here. And in that phrase, in the strength of His might, all of that, all of those battle words, so to speak, in that one verse, point to one person, Christ. You need to be mindful of that our strength in the midst of this battle comes from God it's a battle and our strength in the midst of this is only can come from God because the battle is on a spiritual level the battle is on a spiritual level verse 11 put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil uh, he says put on or clothe yourself it's the same word in Romans chapter 13 verse 12 Paul writes to the Romans here, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is an action we are responsible for. Okay? It, very carefully, looking at this word, it doesn't say, Be armored, as though someone was going to do that for us. We're going to bring this up again, but i tell you, this is significant. It's saying, We have a responsibility here to put on that armor. That's our job. And Paul uses the word for full armor. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, when he writes about this in other portions of Scripture, like Romans chapter 13, he just uses the word armor. But twice here in Ephesians, he uses the word for full armor. In other words, there's something to this armor, and he's going to list them in a moment. And he says, stand against, put on the whole armor of God and be able to stand against. It's a defensive posture. And it's standing against the schemes of the devil. Paul introduces right here with that one word, devil. Here's the spiritual aspect of this battle. It's on a spiritual level and he is our enemy. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He uses one of those literary tactics again where he says, not this, but this. You see that? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, not the things that we can see, the material world, but this. And he goes on to describe it. He says, the rulers. This is a government-related word. The rulers, um, the authorities. The authorities. And that's a word that's often used in in reference to the spirit world. And then I like how the ESV kind of puts this together and says, The cosmic powers over this present darkness. And then, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Wow! It's as if Paul busts out every single word he can think of to describe how dark and terrible and horrifying this is. He doesn't just leave it in verse 11 and say, Devil. Uh Uh-uh. He spells it out in 12 and says, this is what it's like. And I tell you what, for those of you that have vivid imaginations, uh, my imagination says, I bet you Tolkien's Mordor would probably look like Disneyland in comparison to what Paul is writing about. Some of us might ask, is it really supernatural? And from personal experience, maybe you, maybe me, just purely from experience there are some who may be skeptics some who have, who say i have never seen it i've never heard it I, you know i'm real skeptical i don't think so you know show me scientific, scientific evidence then there are others perhaps again purely from experience who say well i'm kind of on the fence heard some stories experienced this this i'm just not quite sure there really is a supernatural and there are others purely from experience, who say, I have no question. (laughs) Been there, saw it, heard it, felt it. There is no question. There's some other realm that we're not totally aware of all the time. Well, if you look at Scripture, there is no doubt. There is no doubt. Look at Job chapter 1. God and Satan having a conversation over Job or the Gospels. All throughout the Gospels, so many times Jesus was having to directly deal with demonic forces. And make no mistake, we are now stepping into a realm we humans know very little about. Not that we should have an unhealthy fixation with the spirit world. I'm condoning that. Not saying that we should look behind everything and say it's got to be the spirits that are making that. Not the case. No. I think sometimes our imaginations just run away with us in that sense, and we need to be careful. can't say that Satan is behind every sin or every temptation either. In fact, the Bible spells out different sources of temptation. One, and looking at uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses, verses uh, 15 through 17, the world, he says, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, this is often manifested in materialism. And that's a temptation that we face. It has nothing to do with Satan. It's just that we want everything. Another one is the flesh. Read Romans chapter 7. It's a very clear picture of temptation. And that's manifested often in uh, addictions, immorality, greed, gluttony. But then there is the devil. And that is temptation. And that is opposition. The devil, that can be internal or external opposition. It can be something that takes place within the mind and the heart and the thoughts and the emotions. Or it can be some other type of opposition through circumstances. He's very creative. Opposition or temptation can be something from simply annoying to completely debilitating. Something like a fly or something like a very dense fog. Sometimes people fall under that and you want to tell them, can't you see? Can't you see what you're doing? Can't you see this is what's doing to, to your family? No, they can't. Because of the deception of the evil one. His temptation, his opposition, it can be either terrifying or it can be very soothing. So he's very creative in that. I, some, I've heard stories, and actually uh, there's occasions, at least two occasions, we've had our team in the Philippines where the encounter has been absolutely terrifying. And our students have left very, very shaken because of that direct encounter with demonic forces. But on the other hand, it can be very soothing, saying, what's wrong? Doesn't this feel good? Don't you want more? So he can be very, very deceptive. His opposition and his temptation can be either uninvited or invited. It can be uninvited perhaps in the form of generational demonic activity or somebody in the family or, or sometimes perhaps through abuse where it's passed on through generations. Or it can be invited where somebody actually invites that activity in. We're talking with some friends, close friends recently that related the story and... and came down to the fact that this individual had actually asked for and spoken out loud and wanted that activity. How could you? But Satan will find his way in either way, whether he's invited or uninvited. He uses confusion. A well, scary thing is there many of us don't know when we're confused. <laughs> okay, That is, seriously. We don't know. Uh, because it sounds so good. One example I think of, and you can probably think of more, one example is some of these um, evangelists, I don't hesitate to call them evangelists, I call them preachers on television or cable. And they will sit there in that studio and quote scripture and somehow confuse people into sending them millions of dollars to be spent and wasted on themselves. That's confusion. That's demonic activity. How else could thousands of people sit there and listen to that and send their money for something like that? That's Satan's tactic. He uses division. He uses division, especially among believers. This is a very, very dangerous tactic of Satan, where believers will be supposedly knit together through the blood of Christ working to the same objective, and then somehow there's one little misunderstanding over some minute detail, and all of a sudden it's divisive. Satan rejoices in that. He wants to see that uh, divisiveness there. He also uses complacency. And I think maybe, and again, this is speculation, but maybe perhaps, especially here in the United States, this is probably one of the most critical and one of the most serious tactics that satan has used is complacency you know it's just i I don't seem i don't have no problems no i I really haven't had to do anything or pray against anything I just cool i just do my christian thing show up on sunday read my bible and no problems at all satan likes that one book that you might want to check out that has been around for years is um screw tape letters C.S. Lewis has a tremendous, wonderful imagination. Uh, screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. It's one of the things that he pulls out of there and says, that's a very dangerous tactic of Satan. Well, there are more. You can probably name quite a few more and see, that's just the thing. When you think you've fig- figured out all of his tactics, he'll take a cheap shot from behind. You think he got it covered that's how he works maybe capitalizing on a previous sin there's some unresolved anger or discouragement the thought my life will never change and you think wait a minute wait a minute we're, we're believers okay we're we're indwelt by the holy spirit right yes we can't be possessed by the devil right yes we can be bothered by him. He does choose to do that to believers. He chooses to oppress, not possession, but oppression. And he chooses to, uh, different catastrophic circumstances, um, so many different ways that he can affect the lives of believers. In fact, if you look back in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, you'll see that Paul encourages, this is where he's writing about anger. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, and then in verse 27, when he writes about anger, he says, don't let the devil get a foothold. In other words, that's one of the ways that it can happen. The devil can get, he's writing to believers here, so the devil can get a foothold in a believer's life. That doesn't mean he's possessed, but he certainly is bothered. There's one little claw or something, however your imagination wants to put it. There's something that's bothering us as believers. That does happen. In fact, I recall one prominent Christian author and speaker who, as he was preparing to speak on a series on spiritual warfare, encountered numerous catastrophic circumstances, too frequent, too timely, to be considered coincidental. Satan knows. He knows. Well, you think... (laughs) With all of this, there must be something we can do. There is. Peter says, resist the devil. Paul even goes further and says, let me tell you how. Here's some armor that you can put on. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Got to remember it's a battle. We need to remember that our strength to fight this battle comes from God. Third, the battle is on a spiritual level. And fourth, the spiritual battle requires spiritual armor. Therefore, in light of all this, take up the whole armor, that phrase repeated again, and stand against, that's a defensive posture. Take your battle position, but take it with your armor in place. I can't help but think of uh, last weekend as we saw live footage of, of uh, what was going on downtown and seeing some of those police, police officers on the front line in their battle gear. I mean, they had the vest, they had, all, they had the, the helmet and the face guard and everything because they were on the front line against those individuals who, and forgive me, I don't call them protesters. Okay, those are anarchists. Anarchists. They were not there to protest. They were there to find some way to destroy the police officers. That was very clear from what they said and what they did. But anyway, here were the police officers on the front line, and not one of them would stand there and say, I don't need this, take this off, take this. No, 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 no. You need all of that. So you have that picture in your mind of having the whole armor. I paraphrase this verse like this. A strong posture resisting the onslaught And when the dust settles, you're still standing amid the battle debris. And it starts listing the armor, and you can just imagine. I mean, Paul was under house arrest, okay? So there was some Roman soldier guarding him. And quite possibly, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and his imagination, he's looking out at each piece of armor there and kind of listing and saying, that's a good illustration, starts listing it out for us. And as he lists them, he's also quoting phrases from the book of Isaiah. Some of you might have cross-references in your Bible. It's good to go back and look at that. Paul uses that. This is now the third time in the book of Ephesians that Paul has used Old Testament quotes. And he's doing this, I believe, well, perhaps, uh, there were Jewish believers within that congregation. He wants to reference uh, the law and the prophets for them. Now, this is a very familiar passage as we think through the different parts of the armor. And, and, you know, maybe in Sunday school you already learned this. Maybe some of you even got to wear some of the armor. And so sometimes we kind of get hung up on those pieces of armor. I want to take a step away from that and look more closely at what the armor represents. So I'll mention the armor pieces one at a time, but I'm not going to go into great detail about those. What we need to understand is what they represent. First is the belt of truth. It's a piece of clothing that basically held everything together. The sword and the breastplate were attached to it. The belt of truth. This is our integrity. Not just saying true things. Paul already covered that in chapter 4, verse 15, and chapter 4, verse 25. He's saying being true. So you can say true things and still not be truthful within. Did you know that? This speaks to Integrity. That's important, holding everything together. I think one of the most difficult things, one of the most difficult things is being true to yourself. Do you ever lie to yourself? We are so gullible. We know it's a lie, but yet we still tell ourselves lies, and we believe it, right? That's one of the most dangerous things. Because we can lie to ourselves and make ourselves believe something that is absolutely not true. Wow. And this belt of truth, the integrity, that's what he's talking about. From deep within, there is a realness, true integrity. Psychologist Scott Peck says this, The central defect of evil is not the sin, but the refusal to acknowledge it. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. See, and if this piece of armor is not fastened properly in some way will last for a while in battle, but after a bit, things begin to unravel. Can't be faked. Begins with the mind. Chapter 4, verse 17 speaks of the unbeliever's futility of the mind. And in chapter 4, verse 23, Paul says we need to be made new in the attitude of our minds. That's where it begins. Behind our actions... Words and attitudes are our thoughts. That's the first piece of armor. The second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. This is just a piece of body armor that covered basically like a vest. And it was meant to protect the vital organs. And we're talking, you see the word righteousness and you think, wait a minute. We learned back in chapters 1 through 3 that it's God's righteousness. Yes, it is. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about our own righteous acts. The sum total, collectively, of our pattern of living. Not a righteous act now and then, just try to make ourselves feel good. Some some people think that somehow, some way, if you do enough of those righteous acts, it'll outweigh the bad ones. (laughs) Not going to happen, trust me. Not going to happen. No, it is the sum total collectively of our pattern of living. And this is a hard one because sometimes, isn't it just then I'm trying to be good? Have you ever tried like that? We're human beings. Constantly we find out, man, okay, so I'm not righteous. Well, before God we are. We've got to remember that. He sees us through Christ. However, here's a picture that I like to use, and it comes from 1 John. It's kind of like being drawn into the light. When you read in First John, you read so much about the contrast between darkness and light. And God is light. John comes out and states that. And as we are drawn towards God, some of those little dark spots within us are revealed. And we say, oh, that's one of those unrighteous areas. And as he shines that light into some of those dark corners of our hearts... Our tendency is to kind of push the hand away and say, oh, no, 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 don't touch that. But instead, of allowing him to reveal those areas, that's the pursuit of righteousness. These first two items have to do with protection truth and righteousness, integrity and character, who you are and what you do. Verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, this is now the third piece of armor. Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This word readiness comes from a word like foundation. Okay, maintaining a fighting stance, but based on the gospel of peace. Not based on some, you know, your, your flip flops where, where it's more like uh, the how to books or fighting for dummies. No, 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 no. The gospel of peace. That's what this is for. Kind of like in football, um, the the linebacker will take a, a three point stance, very hard to knock over in that case. Or think of it, uh, think of that word again, the word readiness, because that's what the shoes are for. Um, think of it, I, I've ridden the the uh, L before, and if you know if you're a commuter, you know how this goes. You're just riding the L, and you just kind of unconsciously know when to brace yourself and where the jerks are going to be. And somebody new gets on, okay, and you can tell right away. They're not from around here. Okay? And they get up, the doors open, they get in and put their, down their stuff, and the doors close, and they're still standing there, you're thinking, you better hang on, but they don't, and all of a sudden the car jerks and they go flying over against the wall or something like that, and you're reading your book and you put your head down, try not to laugh real hard. Okay? Uh, okay, that's the picture. See, you already unconsciously have braced your feet. You know what's coming. That's what these shoes are for. Based on the gospel of peace. The fourth one is, the shield of faith. Now this is a large, from what I gather, a large about two and a half foot by four foot wooden and covered with leather, and the leather is soaked in water. I don't even want to know how much that thing weighed. But it must have been, it must have been very, very heavy. And it was also made to lock, kind of interlock with shields next to it so that the Romans could set up this line of defense that was almost impenetrable. I mean, you talk about spears, arrows, whatever. They're not going to get through. And that's what this shield of faith is. And in this case, he tells them why they need it. Because of the fiery arrows of the evil one. Don't try to dodge the arrows. (laughs) There are too many. And he knows how to hit them. Put up the shield of faith. Our faith, Hebrews chapter 11. I tell you, one of the most encouraging, wonderful chapters in the Bible. It's the faith chapter. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is not wishful thinking. This is a conviction. It is the insurance, Assurance. That is what faith is. Faith is rooted in God, first of all. Mark chapter 11, verse 22, Jesus says, have faith. He doesn't just stop there and say, have faith. He says, have faith in God. That's the object. It has results. And all through the, the Gospels, especially, as you read about Jesus and he says, your faith has healed you or your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It has results. Our faith does. Our faith is linked to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke records this in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts um, chapter 6, 5, and also in chapter uh, 11, verse 24. He says that the believers were full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Puts them together. It also is a work in progress. Second Corinthians ten fifteen, Paul writes that as your faith continues to grow, so it's something that does need to be developed. I tell you, our faith is in God, but if Satan can cause us to waver in any way, he has the opportunity to succeed. Our faith needs to be strong. Think of Eve. And he said to her, did God really tell you not to eat of any fruit in the garden? In other words, he was attacking her trust. Can you really believe in God? Can you really trust what he's going to say? And she wavered. And this goes to the core, I think, of Satan's tactics, and that is deceit. All it takes is for that shield to be just a couple inches out of place. And one of those fiery arrows can find its mark. Another example is Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Now, pride and greed were central to their downfall, but it was Satan who deceived them into thinking they could lie to the Holy Spirit. He put the lie in your head saying, you need these material things, you owe it to yourself. And they placed their faith in financial stability rather than in God. We have that faith. It's, it's still developing in us. Okay? Some of us got that cardboard shield up. Okay? We're working on it. Uh, but it does need to be developed. Uh, some of us know people, I, I know people that, um, whether it be missionaries, especially missionaries, some who have just enormous faith and you think, man, I wish I had faith like them. You do. First John 5, 4. The victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That's a past tense already overcome the victory that has overcome the world our faith that was the fourth piece of armor the fifth piece of armor is the helmet of salvation verse 16 in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one in verse 17 take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god this helmet is something that again protects a very vital area of the body. Now, it was probably, I'm guessing, it was very heavy, very cumbersome. Probably was hot, but it was meant more to represent and intimidate. Probably had have you seen pictures of them? Probably had that Mohawk thing going on. Really cool to wear, you know. And that was meant to be that way to represent the Roman army and to intimidate. And this uh, helmet of salvation gives us that confidence. And an in no, interesting note there, he doesn't say, take up the helmet of salvation. He says, receive. He changes his word here. Receive the helmet of salvation. He knows that. That's something that we receive from God. You're thinking, I, um, I'm already saved. What, what's the deal here? Remember, remember, salvation, the three tenses, past tense, you were saved. When you came to faith in Christ and crossed that line, you were saved. Present tense, our sanctification, we are being saved. God continues to save us. In future tense, our glorification, we will be saved. And I think, looking at this, along with First Thessalonians 5.8, I think the hope of our salvation is what's in view here. Um, in fact, that's what he writes in First Thessalonians 5.8. It's the future hope of salvation. We can be sure of this. This gives us, us confidence. We can be sure of our salvation. I know that often there are people, and and quite frankly, I remember doing this myself, wavering, wondering, am I really saved? Read scripture. What does it say? When we're sealed, it's not us who does the sealing, it's God who does the sealing through the Holy Spirit. When he says that we're in his hand, it isn't because we stepped in there, it's because he placed us in there. I know there's some people who will say, well, you can lose your salvation. I, I could jump out. I could jump out of his hand, right? No, you didn't step in to begin with. He put you there. And he's not going to take you out. That's the assurance of salvation. That's the helmet of salvation that he's talking about here. Sixth, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Now, the words, a couple of words here I want to I take note of because they're important. The sword here that he's talking about is more of the 12 to 16 to 18 inch shorter weapon, not the broad sword the ones that we got to swinging around when we were in Sunday school and trying to, you know, everybody and everything. No, it's more of the hand-to-hand combat one. And the word that he uses here for Word of God is not the broader logos that is often used in Scripture. It's rema. It's a different word. It's a specific word for a specific time. That's what he's talking about when he says the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Something specific. The best illustration for this is found in Matthew chapter four. If you remember Matthew chapter four, that is when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. In each of those three temptations, Jesus pulled out one verse that had to do specifically with the temptation that Satan was shooting at him. That's what it's talking about. That's the sword of the Spirit. Using it accurately, specifically against Satan. Let me use a word of caution here. Sometimes we like to pull out that broadsword. And in so doing, there are times when we damage the people around us. I think one of the most... One of the hardest things for me to do is sit across from somebody and realize that the gaping wounds that he or she has is because of some well-meaning fellow soldier. They call that friendly fire. Don't do that. That's not what the sword is for. The sword is to be used against Satan. And it's to be effective against him. See, this is one area that Satan attacks as well. If he can keep us from the word... We are of no threat to him. We're running out into battle, unable to do anything against the enemy. And it's consistent study of Scripture that allows us to use this, the word effectively. Okay, this is significant because you don't want to be one of the recruits, that, that, that the new guys that picks up the rifle and says, Now, which end of the bullet come out of? No, okay? We need to know exactly what's in Scripture. And it takes some study, deep, serious study of God's Word. Now, I'm, I have been encouraged by and, and, and benefit from radio programs and so forth where good speakers will, will speak. And I'm encouraged by and have read devotionals where somebody else has processed a passage and written it out for us. And I have listened to sermons and all that is good. But that is absolutely no substitute for our own study of God's Word. Just you, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, I, I don't understand it. You know what? You know who the teacher is? The same teacher who taught those speakers, the same teacher who taught those authors, can teach you and me. The same Holy Spirit. And we need to. I'm not, and I'm not saying we just do away with those devotions, do away with the radio programs. No, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that we need to open up God's Word. If we're going to use it as a sword, to use it effectively, we've got to know it. We've got to study it. That's where, Otherwise, we're just walking out there. We, we've got the helmet on. I've got my shoes on, everything is like that, and walking out of the war. Where's your sword? Oh, Oh, I needed that too? That's how vulnerable, that's how defenseless we are. If we fail to allow God's Holy Spirit to be our teacher, we can twist and misinterpret God's Word to make it fit our own purpose. That's dangerous. That is dangerous. We need to be very careful with that. Now, those of you that have lived through Chicago winters, and I know it's kind of hard to imagine that today, but those of you who have lived through Chicago winters know what it's like when you see the temperatures below zero and there's wind chill and everything like that. You step out your door to go to work or to go to school, and it feels like every single molecule in your body has instantly frozen. You know that feeling? Okay, picture it if, oh, you know what? Today... I'm just going to put my t-shirt, my shorts, and my flip-flops and walk out there completely defenseless. How foolish that is. Do you realize the risk we take when we go about our business and go to work and go to school without the armor of God? See, the war is won. We know that from Ephesians 1 through 3. But there are daily battles. Ephesians 4 through 6. We need to know who our enemy is. More importantly, we didn't know, truly know, our God. See, applying the armor to our spiritual lives is up to us. We can't say, it's not my fault, I didn't know I needed this peace today. Doesn't work that way. Okay? You came to a point in your life where mama stopped dressing you before you went out the door. Right? We all did. We all have a personal responsibility. When we see the armor, we know what is needed. I think too many of us, perhaps, maybe unknowingly, have entered the battle like Tolkien's Hobbit against a thousand orcs. Barefoot, with a butter knife in our hands and a pot lid for a shield, a baseball cap on and say, bring it on. Really? Really? You think you're going to go to battle that way? I don't think so. We need to be in God's word, understanding, knowing what he's teaching us, knowing him, not being, we need to know who our adversary is, but most importantly, we need to know God. I know there's some today here who may be facing a pitched battle outside these doors. Some maybe even brought it in. There are some who have endured abuse in the past. Some may have relatives who were involved in demonic activity. Some may be suffering from a fog and a depression they just cannot explain. I want to pray for us. Before I do, I want to say this. Listen. We have the means not to just somehow survive the war. We have the means to actually win the battles. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we know this. It's a challenge for us to know how do we put this into our practice? What do we do? How do we do this? Oh God, I pray that you would teach us. Teach us how to do this to put that armor in place and not go out into the world whatever it is you call us to do defenseless we don't need to do that we know that but we have to rely completely on you for your strength thank you for this reminder today if anything it reminds us our father we have